Thank you, Hal. Yes, welcome to the National Capital Bible Church on Resurrection Sunday. Uh, Hal did not say uh, at what distance you should be able to watch that eight-year-old, but uh, I think the idea is that you would be in pretty close proximity to them and not at a great distance. So, uh, but anyhow, if you're able to do that, that would be wonderful. But today is a a wonderful day. It's a day that we remember uh, many things, I believe, but the ultimate uh, understanding of this day is that the tomb is empty and we serve a risen Savior, a Savior who uh, not only gave his life for us, but was raised to newness of life. And it's because of his newness of life, we have newness of life as well. So, are we having a, a little bit of difficulty in with the sound back in the back, or can you hear me? It's all well? Okay, great. So, this morning, uh, we have, with our two messages, the morning message, well, the early message, I guess, and the other one, second, our second message, what I plan to do is work on two various, have two various approaches, and one is sort of the historical approach. And then the other one is what we might call the doctrinal approach uh, to see truly the importance of our Lord's resurrection. And we also have uh, our communion service, which begins our second service today. So it's, um, it's quite an important day. It'll be uh, absolutely wonderful. But first of all, we have our spiritual preparation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believes in him is not condemned, but he that does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This morning, as we prepare for our worship service, we have a few seconds for our own private uh, spiritual preparation, which is done as we normally do, as we uh, is our routine in the privacy of our own hearts, closing our eyes and bowing our heads, giving you a few a few seconds, and then I'll open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this day. We're thankful that we have a risen Savior, your Son, who is our Savior, whom you sent to resolve the sin barrier. And we're thankful, Father, that we had nothing to do with that, that it was all finished at the cross, completed work by our our Lord at that time. And, Father, our salvation, our relationship with you, our eternal destiny is based simply on our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the simplicity of it. We're also thankful, Father, for the record that we have in the Word of God this morning. And we pray that you will bless us this morning in our worship service. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was thinking about the message today, the, the two that we have, and in the past, 
looking at the the Passover week, um, what has been has become known as Good Friday. It's no better Friday than any other day, but that's uh, has come to us from church tradition, uh, chiefly uh, Catholicism. And then, of course, Saturday, or what was what is known uh, in the Jewish community as the Sabbath, and then, of course, Sunday, which is uh, Resurrection Day. Uh, I've often <clears throat> tried to paint sort of a complete picture <clears throat> by using all of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and sort of a blending them to get the the story. And as you do that, of course, it it is a um, it's it satisfies one uh, part of maybe our desire, and that is for a, a complete picture. But when we do that, we also break up each author's intent as they are working their way through the story that they wrote. And so I reversed courses as I was trying to put together sort of the historical approach here and decided there's a book that we very often do not study, um, mostly because the book of Mark is maybe sort of a boiled down version of Matthew, Luke, and John. So this morning I thought what I'm going to do is go to the book of Mark and follow that trace of what is occurring here and what Mark is trying to tell us. Um, The Gospel of Mark, we believe, was written by a young man by the name of John Mark, and many will recognize the name. We believe that John Mark was a young man living in Jerusalem and that it's likely that he was a believer at a very young age. We learn later in the book of Acts that he is related to Barnabas and goes on the first uh, missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. Um, He doesn't complete the journey which causes uh, consternation between Paul and Barnabas. But we also believe that Mark, while living in Jerusalem, may have been related, possibly the son, of the family that owned the upper room, and that this young man was involved on the evening at the Garden of Gethsemane, And later on, therefore, was not only a disciple, but he was involved with the apostles. And we believe that as the author of the Gospel of Mark, he is really writing the words of Peter. And so this is Peter's story. And as we go through the book of Mark, every now and then there is some insight into uh, what Peter was thinking or doing that we may not have in some of the other uh, Gospels. But also, Peter, as he's telling the story, is not as um, 
uh, verbose. Uh, he doesn't uh, have the same flair, we would say. And so we have more of a, as I mentioned before, sort of the boiled down story as Peter tells this story. And I know that there are some parts in here as he describes them that were painful for him, particularly this part of the story. So as we begin in Mark, Mark 14, Mark Mark is a shorter gospel than the others, but that plays into uh, what we, um, into the shorter version. I decided that we would start, instead of starting maybe earlier in uh, Mark 14 with um, the upper room discourse or uh, the uh, the Passover meal in the upper room, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. I'll mention those as we get started here. But we're going to begin in verse 53 of Mark 14. Uh, and the only thing that I might do here is back up a couple verses into 51. And it says, Now a certain young man followed him, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ, having a linen cloth thrown about his naked body. And the young man, uh, and the young man laid hold, the, uh, the young men that were around there that were also arresting the Lord, laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. And we believe that this is the only place in the Gospels where this is recorded. And we believe that Mark records it because it's a first-hand account of him following the Lord and the disciples from the upper room, probably late at night, dresses, goes out, follows them out, is just watching intently uh, with his curiosity about the Lord and the disciples. And so he's there when the Lord's arrested. And then uh, he is. there's an attempt to arrest him and he flees. So, beginning in verse 53, we see, and they, this would be the arresting party, led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. And then sort of parenthetically, we read, and Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. The word here, the phrase at the fire, really is facing the light so that he was easily recognizable. That's the phrase, verse 5, 55. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Uh, I'll address that in a moment, but there is probably nothing more irritating to a prosecutor or a defender to not get a rise out of a witness. 
Again, the high priest asked him, saying, saying to him, Are you the Christ? Christ meaning, it's a transliteration from Christos, meaning Christos, meaning the anointed one, the son of the blessed. And now Jesus answers. Jesus said, I am. And if you will see, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? In other words, he's asking the rest of the Sanhedrin, the rest of the council. And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. We'll see that in verse 65, uh, this is a game. They're playing a game with the Lord. And when we return, we'll see what this game is. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this marvelous passage. Uh, even though it is a passage that does bring us some discomfort and even pain as we read about our Lord. But Father, we, we know that as this is occurring, this is your plan. We know that there is nothing in history that happens that is beyond your control. You sometimes direct and you sometimes allow. And here, Father, you were doing both. And so as we read this passage, one of the lessons, one of the applications is that this is your plan, that you were there, that nothing is happening to your son, that you were either not guiding or allowing. And so, Father, we rest in that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as we begin our, our passage here, the first thing that we realize is that and we've seen this before, our Lord is going to have two trials, essentially. Two series of trials, we could say. One is going to be in front of the religious authorities, and the other one is going to be in front of the political authorities. And we'll see that in each of those trials, we will have a series of three. And so as we begin here in Mark fourteen fifty three we see that Jesus is led away to the high priest. Now, we know from other passages that the Lord does not go immediately to the council, but he actually has a preliminary hearing with the, the high priest that, that was the previous high priest, I guess we could say, and that was Annas. And he's interviewed by him, and then he goes to the actual high priest at that time, who is Caiaphas. And so Mark, again, leaves out the uh, early trial, the, what we might call a hearing, sort of a courtesy hearing for Annas, who really was the power behind the high priestly uh, uh, position right now. And it says that assembled with the high priest, and the, again, this is Caiaphas, are the authorities, the high priests, uh, the chief priests, rather, the elders and the scribes. And these make up the, uh, the Sanhedrin, the council. This is the official 
legal body, we would say, of, of Israel at the time. Uh, there are 70 of them in each, uh, or, or throughout, I should say, the, uh, the land of Israel. There are other Sanhedrins, but they're much smaller. And they're designed, again, to pass judgment, uh, make legal decisions within those local townships. But here we have the, the Sanhedrin, and they are chief priests, they're elders, they're scribes. We would see here that they are the uh, Sadducees, the Pharisees, and then also uh, scribes here. Uh, we would probably categorize them as uh, the lawyers of the day. And then it says that, uh, uh, and, uh, in most of the translations it says, but, I think the uh, conversity of injunction there is a little bit strong. I think it's and, and Peter followed at a distance. And I think it's meant to be more of a parenthetical statement so that we know as we approach the, the trials, where is Peter? Again, this is Peter uh, interjecting himself as we proceed. Uh, and Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself again toward the fire. Uh, this is very interesting about Peter. It's um, When we study the New Testament, I think one of the highlights of the New Testament is studying Peter. Uh, of course, studying uh, Stephen and Paul and the others, John, uh, are interesting as well. But Peter always seems to have um, uh, an approach that is peculiar. Uh, and some of us would not approach life this way, but Peter does. Um, I think Peter pretty much got the most out of life. And he he had some of the, the, the highest highs, and he'll have some of the lowest lows. Um, he walks on water. He has the opportunity to walk on water. Why? Because he asked. But he also here loves the Lord and he wants to help the Lord. He's curious about what's happening. But he also realizes the grave danger that's occurring. Peter's the one carrying one of the two swords that the Lord, that the disciples had, that cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And the Lord says, no. This is authorized. This is organized, uh, authorized um, detachment, a detachment. And we're subject to them. The swords were to protect us from lawlessness. And I could branch off now into uh, bearing arms, which I believe that passage does authorize. That's, they were carrying. But this is Peter again. And so he comes into the courtyard. Now, what other of the disciples are going to be so bold as to go right into the courtyard? We'll see that at least one other disciple does, and that's John. But John probably has a close relationship to the high priest. He's seen there relatively often as a young man. 
And so for him to be there is not unusual. For Peter to be there is unusual. And as a matter of fact, for him, as we'll see, it might even be a little bit dangerous. Now, before we go on, let me probably spend more time than I should here with some maps, some slides. And Scott, we may need some assistance here. All right. This is Jerusalem in Jesus' time. We've seen this map before, but this gives us an orientation for, for what we have. Um, first of all, the Kidron Valley is right here. The Mount of Olives is up here. The Lord came down the Mount of Olives to enter uh, Jerusalem on uh, what we call Palm Sunday, Sunday or the Triumphal Entry. And here is the Temple Mount. Uh, the Hinnon Valley is down here. The Hinnon Valley is where uh, Judas will eventually be buried, or he will fall. Um, now, for us, uh, events, locations that are important to us, I will direct your attention over here to what's known as the upper room. We believe that this is where the upper room was. believe that it was owned by John Mark's uh, family. believe that it was probably uh, his mother that was uh, assisting, helping, supporting the uh, the Passover meal that night. Uh, the disciples come out of the upper room, transition down into the Kidron Valley. Most people believe that they probably didn't go through that city, but maybe gone around, but we don't know. Uh, Tyropean Valley is right here. Uh, anybody that talks about uh, Jerusalem always talks about the valleys, the three valleys that um, support or surround the city. On our uh, our trips, we have been taught when we think of the city to hold up our hands and to look at the city like this. And you can see that while it, you know, depending upon your hand, it doesn't fit exactly the way it should. But we have the Kidron Valley here. We have the Tyropean Valley here and we have the Hinnon Valley down here. And so this helps us to see the upper city the lower city plus the uh, the Temple Mount, and then we have the Kidron Valley, which sep separates the city from the Mount of Olives. So, the Lord and the disciples transition down to the Kidron Valley, and we've done that on many trips. We would transition, come out of the city, walk down steps, down into the Kidron Valley, and work our way up to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was arrested, and then brought back up into the city. Now, there are two different maps, and again, I'm, this always takes me longer than I think it will because I just look at it and say, yeah, it's got everything I want. Uh, there are two different uh, theories on the traveling, the travels, the steps of our Lord that night. And there are some who believe that he does come over here to the house of Caiaphas, which was where his father-in-law, Annas, is also going to be living. Uh, and then from there, when uh, after the three trials with the religious authorities are concluded, that he goes from here over to the Antonia Fortress over here to see uh, uh, Pilate. But as we've learned more and more about the relationships within Jerusalem, the relationships between Pilate and Herod, and Pilate's, of course, his preferences 
we now believe that uh, instead of being over here, that he was really up here in the palace of Herod, that he was sharing the palace of Herod that night. And when we start talking about the trials of our Lord that evening, we know that they probably started late at night, maybe uh, one o'clock in the morning. If we tried to separate them with time, we may end up taking more time than than it actually took. But if we start, let's say, at one o'clock, we need to be finished before six o'clock. This is our time, because it's at six o'clock that Pilate releases the Lord to begin the process for crucifixion. So we see six trials tonight. So if he is traveling from here all the way over here, and then back to Herod, and then back to Pilate, and then back over here, we have a, a rather lengthy evening. Most people believe that he may have come here, but they quickly trans, transition over here. It's con, all the business that needs to be conducted with the three political trials are conducted there. And then from there, they will transition through the, the, uh, the walls of the city and out to a location right here, which is the traditional location of uh, the of Golgotha, the, the place of the skull, Calvary. Uh, there's another location which is just to the north up here, which is also known as Gordon's Tomb or Gordon's Calvary. But uh, while it has all the appearances of uh, the kind of tomb that our Lord, uh, where he was uh, crucified and where he was buried... Uh, almost no one would say that that is where it occurred. We do believe that it happened right here, and that's one of the reasons is that through the ages, um, uh, shrines, churches uh, have been built there, and right now the uh, Church of the Holy Holy Sepulchre is there. Now, this is sort of an artist's reconstruction of what we believe to be Herod's, pa- Herod's palace here. And it's described as having two locations within the palace, and we believe that Herod would occupy one. Herod didn't live down here permanently, so this was just one of his many palaces. And the other one would be where Pilate would stay when he came temporarily to Jerusalem. Uh, normally, he's up in Caesarea. That's the palace that he really enjoys. And so he would travel down here. Uh, some people would say he came down to enjoy the Passover festivities. But more than likely, he came down, he brought a contingent of the legion that he has up in uh, Caesarea uh, to maintain control. Because almost anything could happen at the Passover. Uh, the zealots could uh, cause a problem. And as far as Uh, Pilate was concerned, his one main concern was the uh, peaceful existence in Israel so that Caesar is, uh, so he's not up on the the skyline with Caesar. Here is another picture of this same location. But this one shows sort of the, the courtyard here between them. And the reason I've done all this is so that we can see where Peter probably was. Peter was probably there between those two locations. 
All right, let's press on here. So, um, we see that the, the chief priests are meeting, but this is not an official meeting because this is more of an arraignment. But most of the council is there. Uh, Caiaphas will then call the rest of the council, and that's when he is questioning him. So we see that the scribes and the Pharisees gather, and in this first sort of paragraph paragraph here, 53 through 55, 56, what we're seeing is that there are really three trials there. First of all, the meeting with Annas, secondly with Caiaphas, and then all of the, the council are there. And you'll notice it says that there were testimonies against him, but they couldn't agree. Why couldn't they agree? Because they're lying. There's no truth in what they're saying. And either they didn't plan this very well, meaning they didn't coordinate their stories, because these witnesses were probably brought in by uh, the Sanhedrin, by the, the chief priests, knowing full well they don't have anything on the Lord. They have been trying for three years through question and answering of the Lord. They've got nothing. And so they now have these false witnesses that are coming in to testify against the Lord. And when it says their, their testimonies did not agree, it says that they, they were not equal. They didn't equal each other. And then it says, someone finally says, by the way, I did hear him say that he would destroy the temple. Well, destroying the temple was, by the way, a capital offense. That was a very serious offense. And so while they don't understand this, or whether they did understand it or not, meaning that it, he was referring to his body, they use it to mean the physical temple. So they're now accusing him of, uh, of uh, proposing to destroy the temple. But even then, and that is, by the way, something the Lord did say. But they can't get their story straight there either. So even these liars can't get the truth straight. And then up with uh, verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? Now, many of us have probably seen various um, television shows or movies where we have this orchestrated courtroom scene. And, of course, the prosecutor or the defense attorney, whoever happens to be the hero or the villain or whatever it is, what they really like to do is get interaction with those witnesses because it's with the interaction that they very often can prove or disprove the case. So here's the Lord as they're making all these accusations and he's just dispassionate. Matter of fact, he doesn't even answer. And so Caiaphas, the high priest, is completely exasperated by the fact that he's got these bumbling idiots over here who can't get their story straight and he's got a witness who doesn't say anything. This is going nowhere fast. So he finally asks him this question, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And you'll notice here the Son of the Blessed, um, uh, Jews, uh, particularly religious Jews, uh, go out of their way not to mention the word God. And so this is a reference to the Son of God. And the Lord uh, very quickly says, yes, yes, I am. I am uh, the Son of God. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, why does the Lord answer in that way? Well, he identified himself with two marvelous Old Testament passages. And the first Old Testament passage is Psalm 
where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And secondly, he says he is the Son of Man, which identifies him with Daniel 7 as the Son of Man. And to just acknowledge that he is the Messiah is enough. But to associate him with those two passages that absolutely assign him deity is too much for Annas or for Caiaphas. And so he tears his clothes. Now, he probably didn't tear his priestly, outer priestly garments. Those are very expensive. He probably opened them up and tore an inner garment, but that's beside the point. And it says, uh, and he said, uh, what further need do we have of, of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him deserving death. Yes, all right, death. We finally have something and we can condemn him to death. Uh, and then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. This is an, a wonderful little game that they played. And they would blindfold a witness and they, they had other people who considered them, who claimed to be the Messiah. So the Lord Jesus Christ is not the first one. There were many others who laid claim to being the Messiah. And so they developed this game. Oh, well, if you're the Messiah, then you should be able to prophesy. So we'll blindfold you, and then one of about ten of us will hit you with our fist, and then we'll say, which one of us hit you? And then you just keep doing it. You just beat the person to a pulp and say, who was it? Who hit you this time? As you mock them. And that's what we have here. And then others, the officers, were striking them with the palm of their hand. Now verse 66. Now, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. A correct identity. And Peter normally would be very pleased to be identified with the Lord, but not now. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. Now, we're not told that Peter reacts to this rooster crowing because this is probably getting to the time of the morning where there would be maybe a, a periodic rooster crowing. But there is something specific, something very um, specific about that, and that is that the Lord had said, after you've denied me the third time, there will definitely be a rooster crowing. And so the servant girl saw him again. And began to say to those who stood by, this one is, uh, this is one of them, but he denies it again. And then finally, and a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, for your speech shows it. In other words, they could tell from his, the way he spoke, uh, the, we would say the lingo that he had, the uh, accent of his Aramaic, that he in fact was from Galilee, from the north. And he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word which, which Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Uh, over in John we're told that there's an open window so that the Lord Jesus Christ can see Peter. And when he denies him this third time and the rooster crows, it says that the Lord looked at Peter and Peter saw him. And you cannot possibly imagine uh, how that would have affected Peter. Uh, this is someone he loved, someone that he would have 
given his life. As a matter of fact, he said, I will give my life. We will not let you die. We'll, and if you die, we will die with you. And here he's denied him. And it's enough to know what he's done. But it's even more for the Lord to look at him and see him for them to make eye contact. But you'll notice as we go that everything that's happening here is according to plan. These witnesses. Is the, was the Lord guilty of it? No, he's not. And even the efforts of man here are foiled. Chapter 15, verse 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. This is the third trial now. This is the official meeting of the Sanhedrin. And it says immediately in the morning. Um, What we believe here, the morning uh, during that time started early. And this is probably in the vicinity of what we would call three o'clock in the morning. Somewhere between three and six is what they would describe as early morning for them. And so they meet and it says that the whole council met and they bound Jesus, led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? To which he answered and said, it is as you say. And this is a rather cryptic answer by the Lord. And it's really not a, uh, a clear admission. As a matter of fact, this is again an answer that uh, a prosecutor or a defender would not, uh, would not appreciate. In other words, it's saying, if you say so. That's essentially what he's saying. Are you the king of the Jews? And he says, it is as you say, or if you say so. It's a rather bland response to Pilate. Why? Because again, the Lord here is not here to defend himself. And nor is he here to condemn himself. He's on his way to the cross. And in reality, the sooner they finish the sooner we'll get to the cross. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And again, this amazes Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. I mean, they were just throwing everything. Not blasphemy. The interesting thing here was Pilate could care less about blasphemy of the temple. That... That was the charge that the Sanhedrin needed to get him out of the council with their decree for death. But over in front of Pilate, this is not going to work. So you might ask, well, why didn't they come back with that uh, charge of blasphemy? Well, Pilate's going to turn them back over to them and say, well, that's your problem, not mine. But they need to bring him to Pilate because while... The council can adjudicate death. They can't execute death. Only the Romans. The Romans had restricted death, capital punishment, to their authority. Why? Well, because if they allowed it to float down to uh, other levels, there were many Roman sympathizers who were being executed. And so they put a stop to that. So we press on here. Uh, but um, Verse 5, but Jesus still answered nothing. So that Pilate marveled. Now this again, 
when you have somebody in front of you who is guilty or even innocent, they are quick to try to prove whatever their position is, deny their guilt, or certainly uh, support their innocence. But the Lord Jesus Christ just stands there and says nothing. Now at the feast, uh, now at the feast he was accustomed, he being Pilate, to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. So here is Pilate now. This is the first um, opportunity he has to say, all right, I'm going to wash my hands of this. And so in a previous day, probably very recent, in a, um, a sweep of the city, they probably have brought in several insurrectionists. And he has three of them. And he has a ringleader. And one of them is Barabbas. And so, because it was the custom of Rome to release a prisoner to them, and more than likely the prisoner that, he would, that they would release would be someone that the Jewish authorities wanted to be released. And so, even though this is an insurrection, an insurrectionist, Barabbas, and a murderer who was an arch enemy of Rome, he is going to uh, allow them to choose. And he's pretty sure that they're not going to want Barabbas released. Why? Because he falls into the category of being a zealot, and a zealot opposed Rome. And many of these people in the Sanhedrin really played pretty well with Rome. And the zealots were often killing them. They would slip into a crowd and kill the Roman sympathizers amongst the Jews. And so Pilate's pretty sure that they're not going to want Barabbas released. So he believes that he is, he's going to be able to play a card that is going to uh, allow him to release the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels, insurrectionists, and they had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying out, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Now, he may have overplayed his hand here because he's mocking them. Oh, well, do you want me to release to you your king? Is that who you'd like for me to release? And what do they say? It says, sort of parenthetically, for he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. So he's just tightening the screws a little bit here, gouging them. But the chief priests had stirred up the crowd so that they should rather release Barabbas to them. No, release to us this insurrectionist, this murderer, who not only is a threat to Rome, but a threat to us. So Pilate's probably thinking, hmm, that didn't work. So verse 12, Pilate answered and said to them, what then do you want me to do with him whom you call king of the Jews? So Pilate now, understanding verse 12, is going to release Barabbas. All right, I'll release Barabbas. But he still has Jesus here. And he's not going to execute him. Why? Because he's innocent. And even Pilate, as possibly unscrupulous as he can be at times, realizes this would be a gross injustice. And say, all right, I'll release to you Barabbas. I won't, I can't release to you Jesus. You, uh, trumped me. But now, what do you propose I do with him? And what do they cry? Crucify him. 
Barabbas was to be crucified, crucify him in his stead. Verse 14, Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. And we learn from John that this is now 6 a.m. This is 6 a.m. in the morning. And the chief priests have really outfoxed Pilate. They were able to convince Pilate to send to a cross to crucify an innocent man. Verse 16. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison. Now, we have a a slight uh, challenge here in the interpretation. The Praetorium really was not here locally. It was uh, the Praetorian guard would be the guard that was around Pilate. And so Pilate has brought his guard with him and he probably establishes a Praetorium down there with maybe a hundred or two hundred of his Roman soldiers. So wherever this is, and more than likely it's one of these areas right here. He doesn't take him all the way back over to the the fortress Antonia. And it says, And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And so here they are taunting him. This is now part of the preparation for crucifixion. And, by the way, the preparation for crucifixion was often as bad as crucifixion. Uh, Very often, the ordeal that the prisoners Uh, endured during the preparation uh, was fatal. They would die here, even though the Romans don't want them to die here because they want them to get to the cross and they want them to suffer as long as they can on the cross. Verse 19, Then they struck him on the head with a reed, like it would be as if he was holding a scepter here, and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him, mocking him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on, and led him out to, to, be, to crucify him. We're told that the Lord uh, is placed on the cross at 9 a.m. So if Pilate releases the Lord at 6 a.m., and he's led out finally by the soldiers, we'll see that's a detachment of cent- a centurion and four soldiers. This lasted for three hours. This abuse was extraordinary, and probably even more so because they believed him to be, or they were mocking him as the king of the Jews, and there was no love lost between the Romans and the Jews. Verse 21, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. They have uh, abused the Lord to the extent that he's unable to carry the cross the crossbar that would go up on the, uh, the tree or the, uh, the post. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. Why does the Lord refuse this? Because what the Romans want at this point is they want to numb some of his pain so that he can endure it long enough to get up on the cross. But the Lord refuses that. 
because he is going to experience every part of this. He's not going to numb the the pain or the effects of it. And when they crucified him or nailed, nailed him to the cross, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Verse, 23, verse 25. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusers, uh, of his accusation, was written above. So the third hour here for us, this would be Jewish time, there is, between the Gospels, there are both uh, Roman time and Jewish time, and this would be Jewish time. So this 3 a.m., which says um, the third hour, this is going to be 9 o'clock in the morning, mid, what we would probably call mid-morning. And it says... Uh, that the inscription said the king of the Jews. Now, it was customary to put a, a title above the individual. Why? Because this is meant to be a public demonstration. And uh, the Romans wanted people to know why this individual was on the cross, because it was a deterrent. This was a significant deterrent, or for the most part it was, even though they did quite a few of these executions. And so it was king of the Jews. And, of course, the uh, chief of uh, the chief priests did not like this. Um, with him, they also crucified two robbers. These are the two that were supposed to be there with Barabbas. The Lord is occupying Barabbas's position, one on his right hand and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And we read that in Isaiah 53, 12. Uh, t- verse 29 says, And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourselves and come down from the cross. And so we have probably a contingent that had been there with the chief priests in front of Pilate, have followed the Lord out there, followed him, uh, taunting him and mocking him, and now, aha, so you can build the temple in three days, can you save yourself? Can you deliver yourself? Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, he saved, uh, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, let the anointed one, the king of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And so here the chief priests are playing this uh, idea of the king, the Messiah, uh, the, the one who would come to deliver Israel. And they still don't understand that the cross has to come before the crown as he was telling them who he was. Uh, John the Baptist, one of the, the first part of the, the uh, uh, message of the kingdom was, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so this part of it was never recognized. Uh, and they reject him also as the Messiah. And then it says, even those who were crucified with him reviled him. And so we start with this, but we know that one of these thieves, one of, and thief is probably a, a little bit nice for them, although they were probably highwaymen and involved in that, they would probably involve murder. But they were murderers as well, and one of them did believe. Verse 33 says, Now when the sixth hour, which would be noon for us, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
for three hours. So three hours of preparation with the Roman soldiers. Three hours of enduring just the normal uh, experience on the cross, which would be uh, just horrible. And now, three more hours. And of the first six hours, they're going to be a walk in the park compared to these next three. Because it's during the next three that he will judicially take upon himself the sins of the entire world. And this is where the real work on the cross is done. And of course, this is where our Lord truly encounters uh, the most excruciating part of his day. And we see that at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And so this is mid-afternoon now, three o'clock. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is a quotation from Psalm 22, 1. We believe that one of the Hebrew methods, Jewish methods, of presenting a passage would be, would be to give either the beginning verse or a verse in that passage. So it's highly likely that the Lord was quoting Scripture while he was on the cross, and he probably quoted all of Psalm 22. Uh, but we're told that he begins with this verse. And it says, why have you forsaken me? And the forsaking him here, of course, is the idea that the Lord has sent, he, he, you know, God the Father never forsakes the Son. I mean, it's impossible for the Trinity to be separated. But judicially here, he has assigned these sins. And the pain is so great, it's as if he was being forsaken. Verse 35, some of those who stood by, when they heard that, said, look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and then breathed his last. And this, of course, uh, if we had a study of the seven comments that the Lord had on the cross, more than likely at this point, he says, it's finished. And it's at that point that he breathes his last. And of course, this is a recognition, again, that God is in control of what's happening here on the cross. We see that the Lord goes to the cross. We see that at the, at the appointed time, God darkens the earth so his son can take on the sins of the world. And then when that responsibility is finished, after the spiritual portion of his time on the cross is finished, then our Lord says, it's time for me to die. And he dismisses his spirit. And the Romans, of course, want their uh, uh, those who they are crucifying to live as long as they possibly can. And so for him to dismiss his spirit, once more, he foils the intentions of mankind. He simply says, it's over. My work here is done. And we could even say that he finally concludes his, one of his opening remarks when he says, I must be about my father's business. His father's business is finished. <clears throat> then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Wonderful uh, object here of being from top to bottom. 
if it was probably being torn by man, it's going to be torn from the bottom. If it's torn by God, it's torn from the top. This was a tall uh, veil. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And this is believed to be a declaration of recognition of who he is. And this centurion, who is a hard man, he would not have had this position if he wasn't. Because not only has he made his way up through the Roman army to the position of centurion, which means he's in charge of 100 soldiers, but he's in charge of the torture detail. And he's in heaven. He's a believer. This witness convinced him as he watched the Lord on the cross. And then it says, verse 40, There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, the mother of the Mary of James, the lesser and of uh, Joseph, Joseph, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. We're going to stop here, and we'll come back to the beginning of our next service um, with our, in conjunction with our uh, communion service. And we'll finish the rest, uh, some more of ch- the rest of chapter 15 here. But one of the things that we can see here, and I think it's absolutely imperative for us to see, is that while we very often think that uh, the Romans, um, with the complicity of the Jewish leaders here, uh, crucified our Lord, and they, in fact, were the instrument of the tools for that. This was all within God's plan. This is the outworking of God's plan from eternity past. God who loved us, who loved his Son, but knew what needed to be done in order to accomplish the salvation that we needed. And so, as our Lord, as our Father brings this to fruition, we now see that sin, the requirement for sin has been paid. Now what? And we'll find that out as we begin our next service. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for uh, your marvelous love and your devotion to us. And we're thankful for our Lord Jesus Christ, our Creator, who loved us as well and who knew the plan that you had for, uh, for us and for yourself. And we're thankful, Father, that for the joy that was laid before you, you executed this, and you executed it in a marvelous way. And while it is truly brutal to read, we realize that because of this, we can have an eternal destiny. And so, Father, we're thankful that simply by believing in our Lord Jesus Christ that we can have eternal life. And it's simply a matter of faith. We ask, Father, that not only would we understand this, but we would have a passion to deliver this marvelous message, this good news to others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.